I've recently been drawn to the nature of war and more relevantly today's state of peace. It's perplexing to recognize the low occurrence of military conflict that has happened since 1815. It's not as if there is a shortage of tension and animosity today. The recent invasion of Ukraine reminds us of the costly exceptions to general peace, like the wars of the 20th century. Professor Azar Gat is a leading scholar on this question and has studied the idea of nationalism and ideological fixation, all of which will be subject to our conversation. Azar obtained his doctorate at the University of Oxford and is today professor at the University of Tel Aviv. He previously served as a major in the Israeli Defence Force. By way of prelude, Azar explains that peace is the result of the immense growth of productivity and the development of the economy. We have reason to produce and trade with whomever we can. It's the best path for our own prosperity, which just so happens to coincide with peace. War, on the other hand, would be suboptimal. The sum of wealth will shrink, only accentuating the suffering for all. We compare these circumstances to the past, looking at historical empires and the various causes of the First and Second World Wars. We look at nationalism and its capricious relationship to liberal democracy and the kindle it sets for war. Azar was the first to introduce the idea of autocratic capitalism as the major competitor to liberal democracy today. These new species are economies of private trade and industry whose governments are highly centralised and authoritarian. And finally, we draw our conversation about liberalism and socialism to question the role of ideology and its fixation, where someone is under the inflexible grip of an idea and is unable to ingest new facts about the world. If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe to our podcast from the platform you're listening to this on, or find us on Twitter at The MyOps. Azar, thank you for joining us today. Um, to start us off, uh, our first question, uh, what makes an all-out war uh, so much less likely today? So people usually uh, mention uh, the, the bomb, uh, nuclear weapons, and obviously this is a very significant uh, factor and has been ever since 1945. But what people forget is that the trend has preceded the bomb. And we see in the 19th century a real decline in warfare. By the 19th century, I mean the century separating uh, from 1815 to 1914, that is from the end of the Napoleonic War Wars uh, to, the, uh, to World War I. Uh, it has long been known that the 19th century has been uh, particularly pacific. Uh, and, and, and what I'm, I claim, and obviously it preceded the bomb. So what I claim is that what you see in the 19th century is the beginning of the trend that we see everywhere in the developed world uh, today or ever since 1850. Uh, if you want to know what uh, that is, uh, so I'll, I'll get to it. Uh, what we have been seeing practically is uh, the breaking of what I call the Malthusian trap. That is uh, the description of the pre-modern world by Thomas Malthus. Uh, he was an, uh, an, an English clergyman, uh, published his book in 1799. And he basically, he was one of the founders of uh, the science of demography. And what he basically said was that, uh, that human society is locked 
in a trap. That is, wherever you see uh, a rise in productivity, which was rising very slowly due to slow technological uh, innovation in pre-modern societies, uh, this uh, growth in productivity is, is, is swallowed by a, a, a growing population. Because once you have uh, more the resources, then uh, more women uh, get pregnant and more uh, infants survive to maturity and so forth. So, so uh, society, human society is locked in, in a tragic situation whereby any growth uh, is then offset by the growth of epidemic diseases, by war, by famine, that cut down again on the numbers. Uh, what this means is that the pre, um, pre-modern society was, um, the sum of the resources was uh, finite. And the only question that, the, the, the only Possible the, the main possible uh, option for increasing one's own share in the resources was by taking from the others. Uh, this supplied within societies towards you know the, towards the less uh, fortunate within society, and it applied outside. I mean, I can I can uh, um, I can rob my neighbor and therefore and thereby increase my share in the resources. What we see from the beginning of the 19th century is the Malthusian uh, trap being uh, broken because of this most, uh, this uh, major transformation in human history, which is the Industrial Revolution. In short, I'll only say that since the beginning of the revolution, in those countries that have gone, that, that have successfully gone through the revolution, uh, production per capita, which is the most common uh, measurement of, uh, of wealth, has increased by a factor of, say, between 35 and 50. So, so if, the, the most, if the wealthiest countries in, 18, in, uh, eight, in uh, 1800 had the uh, pro- uh, production per capita of about $2,000 in today, today's currency, say uh, the United States, Britain and Holland, these were probably the, the richest countries. They are 35 times richer today, uh, which means that uh, the best way to get rich is by investment at home, uh, from which war is an unwanted destruction of resources. Mm. But it's, it's placing productivity and econ- economic growth at the center of the reasoning for peace, really. And that there's a kind of equation of, well, in, this cu- in these current circumstances, there isn't actually much of an added benefit to me attacking my neighbor. So I'm just incentivized from trading peacefully. Yes, Is that correct? True. What are the threats to that equation? Uh, so, uh, so what we see in today's developed world is, and people do not notice this. Uh, they, uh, you know, they mention the many wars that the United States and uh, and its allies have been fighting. But please know that within the de- developed world, uh, war no longer happens. And in addition, nobody 
feels the even the potential of such war. I don't know if you are an international relations man, but the realists, so-called, this is a school in international relations theory, believe that, uh, you know, that the so-called security dilemma, fear of your neighbor is an intrinsic feature of international relations and actually the cause of war. Now, look at the, uh, the developed parts of the world. Nobody, you know, nobody pays attention to the fact, people know this, but, you know, they don't give it a, a second thought to the fact that the, uh, that the United States does not conquer Canada. Why not? I mean, it would have profited the United States so much more than, say, a war in Afghanistan. In the same way, uh, in the same way, Holland and Belgium do not in the least fear a German or a French invasion. This is contrary to the, the entire historical experience. Why not? In the same way, uh, there is no love lost between Japan, South Korea and Taiwan, mostly because of uh, Japan's colonial past. But nobody even, uh, you know, nobody believes that a war between any of them or between them and any other developed part, uh, country is possible. They fear North Korea. They fear China. And in the same way, since you, you know, since you are talking from Melbourne, uh, nobody you know, even uh, think about the possibility of Australia and New Zealand fighting each other. It seems so obvious. Why not? So you see that in all parts of the developer, by developed world, I mean a production per capita of over 20,000. Just to, to give us, uh, you know, just to, uh, to, put us, uh, to put this uh, on scale, uh, China today is only 12,000 per capita. It's uh, now advancing from a low developer to a middle developer. Middle development is something somewhere between 10,000 and uh, 20,000. When you visit, uh, say, Shanghai, you are not likely to see this, but remember that half of China is still uh, agrarian and uh, has a very low uh, level of, uh, of the, the wealth. Uh, so, so, so China is only halfway through the process. Uh, Russia is entirely dependent on the export of uh, raw materials and is also around $10,000 per capita. So what if we took out the, the nuclear bomb from this? Because, you know, we've talked about, you, that was the first thing you brought up. If I took out the bomb as a technology available to the world powers today, do you think it would be far more likely for there to be military conflict, even though um, we've gone past the Malthusian trap? I don't think so. Uh, not, uh, not in the developed parts of the world. Do you think that it is the nuclear factor that defends Canada from the United States? I wouldn't think so. I mean, personally, I wouldn't think so. But also, that's the nature of American hegemonic power. But American hegemonic power today um, seems to, to put itself in a more favorable position in regards to its influence, where it does not have direct control on states. Yeah, but... The it, it, it matters what is the hegemonic, hegemonic system that the United States uh, enforces and protects. It's based, on, uh, it's based on mutual prosperity. It's based on free trade. It's based, uh, it's based on uh, the rules of a liberal world order. 
You know, it's yes, it's hegemonic, obviously, and some would even like to call it empire, but, you know, it's the nature of the empire that matters. Uh, it's not enough. Uh, empires in the past were uh, empires of extraction. That is, basically, they took from you something that you had. Uh, the nature of Ameri American hegemony has been that, you know, one of mutual prosperity. You can see this in... Uh, with, uh, with uh, Western Europe, uh, including Germany, with Japan, ever since 1945. And, and that's the reason why, well, actually, returning then into the past, let's say, examples of empires such as, as France and uh, the British Empire, would you say that their empires and their way of um, having control and extracting and also cooperating with these other nations was one that's similar to the United States today. How does it differ? Where is it so, similar? So we need to distinguish between old-style empires and new-style empires. Old-style empire meaning until, uh, say, until uh, until the uh, until the uh, falling apart of the old British Empire in North America uh, in the late 18th century and the Spanish empire in, uh, in, uh, in Latin America in the early 19th century. Until then, all empires basically were based on extraction. That was the principle, uh, that was the main principle. Now, uh, from the 19th century, there was, uh, there was this, uh, this, uh, uh, principle inaugurated by free trading Britain of informal imperialism, which, uh, which heralds what the Americans were, were going to perform it during the 20th century. Informal imperialism means that the only pressure that the imperial power puts on you is to open your borders. That is to allow free trade. Uh, which and, and, and sometimes like the gunships in yes, Japan. Yes, gunships in Japan and, and gunships against China. You know, uh, so obviously none of this was saintly, but the main principle was opening your borders to open to uh, free trade. Which, in principle, at least things were more complicated in reality. In principle, at, at least are the only way out of the poverty and stagnation of pre-modern society, of pre-industrial society. Mm. Let's look into war, I think, a bit more. Given that we live in a society where we haven't really much need for violent conflict, where although we still have conflict in our interactions and tensions, we don't have to lash out violently in, in, in an individual sense, as well as at a more geopolitical sense. Now, it does lead us to the question then of, is war then simply a, a biological fact we cannot escape? Or is it simply a kind of social construct, something that's imposed on us by society, let's it's say? It's neither. This is a false, uh, a, a common enough uh, false dichotomy. You yourself explained why it cannot be, uh, you know, a biological imperative. You just mentioned that we all of us, I live in Israel, sorry, <laughs> You know, you can, uh, but but uh, otherwise, uh, the the those of us who live in uh, in the countries, uh, other parts of the developed world, uh, they uh, they do not fight. You know, the cliche uh, talks about Sweden and uh, Switzerland. You know, that haven't fought for two hundred years. But I mean, everywhere in the West, people do not fight anymore. Uh, it's not that they they you know, suffer from any 
uh, deficiency because of that. Try, try to deny them of food or for, of, or, of sex for, you know, a short while. And you'll see the reaction. But you deny them of uh, violence and they are quite happy about this. They might be distressed about other things, but, you know, life is not easy. But, you know, it's not that they lack violence. I th I, I, the more accurate way of putting it is that, yes, violence is uh, in, in a way biologically embedded in us, but not as a primary uh, drive, but as one of the tools in the human toolkit. That is, basically, we have three... Three main tools. One is one is peaceful cooperation. We do this all the time. Uh, another is uh, the peaceful competition. We do that all the time also. And the third is violent conflict. Now, people are uh, have, uh, equi fully equipped with the heavy biological infrastructure machinery needed for each of these three activities. Three of these options, think about, for say, say think about cooperation. We have developed uh, evolved language to facilitate this. Okay, so we have obviously heavy biological machinery uh, uh, underpinning each of these three options. Which of them we choose depends on the circumstances. In places where, you know, where violent conflict for various reasons is less uh, favored, such as in our societies, uh, people opt, uh, where the condition favor the other two options, people opt for the peaceful cooperation or peaceful competition. Where conditions are different, uh, say in a bad neighborhood in the inner cities of the United States, uh, you see that people opt for, or if you wish, are forced into uh, picking up the violent option. Mm. It's in the same sense where you'd rather be the other person with a gun if you're surrounded by other people Absolutely. with guns. And this explains why we see such a, a, a wide diversity in homicide cases. So, for example, in Detroit, you have uh, 35... Um, uh, times more homicide cases than in London. Had it been had it been some, some kind of biological compulsion, we would have expected to see similar, you know, similar data in all places. But we still see today. I mean, we've explained that peace is, I guess, the overall status of relations today. Um, how does that explain then? outbreaks of war and military conflict today in places like Vietnam, in places like um, the Middle East, and today more recently in Ukraine? Okay. So the short answer is that all, all, as I say, all wars today take place either between or within the undeveloped or the so-called developing countries which have not successfully embarked on the road to modernization. So they both fight, uh, I forgot to say, in the developed parts of the world, you no longer see civil wars. They've also disappeared. All of them, in all of them. 
So in the less developed parts of the world that are not yet affected by the modernization process, uh, then the, you see civil wars, you see interstate wars, and you see the fear of war. And all the wars today take place either in these parts of the world or between developed countries and undeveloped countries. Isn't there still a great fear that these may ignite into much larger open conflicts? Because there's an element of proxy warfare where large powers are supplying one side within a smaller regional conflict. And then that can spark what may become an incredibly large conflict like we saw in the first and second, well, first world war in particular. Yeah, sure. Uh, So so, uh, in the developed parts of the world, you don't see you don't see proxy wars either. Uh, we can talk, what, as you, you mentioned, right? you rightly mentioned World War I and World War II. Uh, these are the main exception to the trend, and uh, these are Himalaya-sized exceptions. So what we need to explain, yes, so we, what we need to explain is not only the logic of the peace, the expanding peace that we have been seeing since 1815, but we also need to explain the exception, which is the two world wars. If you wish, we'll, uh, we'll do it now or later. I think we can look at it now. I'm happy to. Okay, sure. So, uh, so there are various, so the logic, the economic logic is clear, right? Of, of modernity, as, uh, as I explained it. Uh, there are, however, contravailing forces, and I'll mention that. The main one is modern nationalism. Uh, and uh, there is, uh, we might talk about this later, uh, there, there, is, there are those who think that nationalism is entirely modern. Uh, some, of the, uh, some of us think that it's older. I, I belong to the second school. But it's still the case that nationalism has become so much more potent because of modern development. Now, nationalism means that people would like either to to, to live with the people with the people uh, of the same kin culture, the, the nature within their own state. And what we see in the 19th century, uh, what we see is uh, first. Uh, it's people uniting. The classical case is uh, Germany and Italy. Okay, uh, Italy in eighteen uh, from eighteen fifty nine onward, and Germany in the eighteen sixties. All these cases involved war, wars of unification, because the the national uh, the aspiration. Uh, uh, is important enough to tramp the, uh, the economic rationale that we have just mentioned. People uh, hold, uh, put a lot of store on, 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 uh, on the national independence and unity. Uh, so this is one element. Uh, the second element is the growth in the late 19th century of uh, of tread barriers. They've been rising from 1870 onward. That is, uh, free trade uh, was uh, thus compromised, which in turn, this is called 
national, uh, economic nationalism. There are reasons why trade barriers uh, rose. Uh, you can, we can talk about that too. Uh, but what the what uh, what the uh, what the uh, outcome of this was one of the side effects. Uh, one side effect uh, was that uh, that the the return of colonialism. Colonialism was regarded as dead by 1880. And uh, and then it it made a comeback. Why did it make a comeback? Because with rising uh, trade barriers, that is uh, rising uh, tariff, uh, right, uh, rising customs, uh, it uh, the the fear uh, and, uh, you know increased in the system that the new global economy was not going to be open but is going to be divided in between economic blocks. Uh, now, if this was the case, each, each, each of the great powers uh, had to uh, grab whatever it could while it could, while colonies were still available, not because they offered any value at the time, People at the time knew that colonialism doesn't, imperialism doesn't pay. But because, the, uh, because they thought that within, uh, you know, half a century or a century, once these colonies are developed, they are going to be, uh, you know, very valuable for the countries in a condition where the global economy is divided, is partitioned, rather than remaining open. Let me explain this point uh, with one more sentence. In an open economy, there, if, uh, there is no significance uh, to borders. That is, Luxembourg is as rich and probably richer than the United States in per capita terms. Each citizen of uh, Luxembourg is on average richer than, wealthier than each citizen of the United States. Borders here. Now, however, if the, the global economy is divided by uh, customs, then by tariffs, then uh, size means everything. Because the United States is large enough to produce everything, from television to car to oranges, whereas Luxembourg cannot do any of this. So once the once tariffs uh, shot up in by the late 19th century, we see a return of capital of colonialism. We see the, the rising tensions between the great powers that uh, exploded into a series of crises in the decade before 1914 and eventually led to the war. So to kind of summarize, what I'm understanding is that you've got these elements of nationalism growing, where there's a sense of unity between a particular population and the idea of growing altogether economically. But what that leads to is these kind of barriers between nations, but also between a larger concept of an economic zone, would that be the British Empire or the French Empire? And what that results in is this kind of pressure, a kind of almost zero-sum 
equation where now it's it's a, a free-for-all. You grab as much as you can in the shared room because you know that's all you're going to have and you can no longer just hang around in the general exactly. store. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that results in, yeah, in the equation we come back before where now there's an incentive. Let, let me give an, one more example because it concerns World War II. Mm-hmm. So we see, we see the happy 1920s and then everything collapses with the stock market and with the increasing rise of tariffs again from uh, 1930 onward. Even Britain, which had been a free trading nation for 30 years, now adopts a policy, retreats from uh, a free trade and adopts the policy known as imperial preference. Now think about Germany and Japan. Germany, as a consequence, uh, sees the rise of power to the power of one particular uh, party uh, among its uh, hideous uh, uh, parts of uh, its ideology. One of them is economic autarky, self-sufficient. Uh, which can only be achieved by an expansion of Germany, which is a, a relatively, you know, medium-sized uh, country, cannot uh, cannot uh, support, it cannot exist in, uh, the, cannot prosper under the, you know, under the, 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 the under Germany's economic borders. It, it meant expansion over Eastern Europe and on the ruins of the Soviet Union. Now take Japan. Japan during the 30s have have had a very, uh, you know, have uh, had a very bad uh, you know, journalism, uh, and for good reason because uh, Japan's uh, imperialism was uh, particularly uh, brutal. But remember what it, Japan was a liberal country in the 1920s. What changed was that Japan suddenly saw uh, all its trading partner closing before it. That means the American uh, market, the British Empire, and also the French Empire. And it uh, approached the other power and said, look, uh, we must trade in order to survive. And they said, well, uh, we, uh, with all the sympathy, this is our sovereign decision. So Japan said, if so... I need an empire of my own uh, to, to match yours. And they said, uh, we are sorry again. Uh, this is no longer possible since the establishment of the League of Nations. Uh, international law uh, forbids uh, the conquest of other countries. Uh, we have it uh, from before, so it's all right. Now, it's understandable why Japan would not accept uh, such a logic. And why it would seek to uh, create its own, what it called euphemistically, uh, the East Asian uh, Mutual Prosperity Zone in the 1930s. And if I remember correctly, just before Pearl Harbor, um, when Japan decided to attack directly the United States, that was following a relatively recent decision by the United States government to no, no longer sell oil. Uh, or supply any oil to the, the Japanese sure. Empire uh, in the summer of 1945, uh, following the, the Japanese uh, taking over of uh, French Indochina, the United States imposed an embargo of, on oil and uh, iron. Oil was the most significant. So Japan find, found itself in the following uh, dilemma: 
either it uh, surrenders because it, you know, it, uh, the, the economy would have, uh, and the military would have uh, been, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the stagnant, uh, become stagnant within months. Other, it uh, withdraw from all its uh, that all its uh, line of uh, policy over the previous decade, or uh, try uh, go for the most audacious act: uh, neutralize, destroy the American uh, Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, and then occupy uh, Dutch Indochina. That is today's Indonesia which was uh, very rich in oil and uh, rubber and other raw materials, and thereby offered uh, Japan the possibility of uh, self-sufficiency in resources. And hopefully the United States uh, would eventually give up on the, on the war and then leave, uh, uh, and thus leave Japan in command of uh, East Asia. From your description of these exceptions, since 1815, in terms of the, the times of peace we live in, uh, trade barriers, protectionism, and economic nationalism have really been the driving forces of changing that yes. equation of whether to pursue war or retain peace. Now, how do you then interpret the movements, more recent movements we've seen politically to promote uh, or prioritize one's own uh, economy over that of another, uh, or you see even the the suggested detachment between uh, China's economy as well as that of the United States for that of um, so- uh, reasons of sovereignty. So does that make you fearful? How do you interpret uh, it that? It surely makes me fearful. If uh, one uh, any one thing makes me fearful is the prospect of uh, war in uh, between China and its and uh, the, the United States or its neighbors. That's that's the the gravest uh, threat uh, to world peace and to civilization as we know it. It will be a very different world. We are going uh, to suffer dearly if this happens. Uh, now, what we have here is a bind. On the one hand, as you said, if, uh, if uh, the economies are going to be separated, not, not entirely, but uh, you know, we see a process whereby op- economic openness is uh, pulled back from what it used to be, uh, especially in some critical aspects of uh, the economy. So that this this uh, increases the urge among the sides uh, to get what they can while they can. So, for example, it increases the uh, drive in China to put the uh, hands on the uh, rich oil resource and oil and gas resources of the South China Sea, which, as you know, uh, the China the demands uh, the sovereignty over all of it practically. Uh, so this increases the risk very much. At the same time, however, uh, as uh, Adam Smith. The theorist of uh, free trade said already in the Wealth of Nations in 1776, he said, uh, defense is more important than opulence. If, uh, if free trade is, uh, is uh, made to serve uh, a, 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 a policy of military expansion, 
Uh, that is, if free trade increases uh, your potential enemy's uh, power, then uh, then uh, free trade comes, uh, you know, comes second, at least according to Adam Smith. Uh, so, so think about um, the inclusion of China in the uh, in the, uh, the global trade system. Uh, ever since uh, 1979, was predicated on the assumption that once China is incorporated into the uh, liberal world system, it will eventually or gradually grow change, uh, the experience change, become more liberal, not only economically, but also politically. Uh, this was the entire logic behind incorporation of China into the, uh, into the trade system. Uh, people believed in it uh, deeply uh, only 50, until uh, you know, only 15 years ago. Uh, when I, uh, if you'll excuse me, when I <laughs> published an article in Foreign Affairs on the return of the authoritarian capitalist great powers that I think was uh, 1906 or say, 2006 or seven. Uh, there was a barrage of reactions uh, insisting that China was bound to liberalize. Uh, as we know, since then, uh, the opposite took place. Do you think that it still has the possibility of becoming a liberal economy? I think it's an open question. I think we cannot uh, uh, foretell the uh, result uh, you know, in advance. I think it's an open question. There are many factors involved. We cannot predict them. It's not. It's beyond the powers of our of our uh, prediction. There are many conting possible contingent uh, factors involved. It depends also on the decisions of individual leaders, whoever they uh, may be. Some of the elements are structural and therefore more predictable. Other are, the, look, for example, the current leader of China, Xi, uh, his personal role in steering uh, Chinese policy in the direction that we have been seeing over the past decade uh, cannot be denied. Had there been another leader, we might have seen something different. Uh, now, he's, he's not uh, going to stay there forever. I think. Uh, we'll see. Uh, my view is that whether or not China is going to liberalize, whether or not it's going to take the war pass and say invade the Taiwan is uh, an open question that we, have, we are not able to answer. Mm. Now, you brought up this idea of autocratic uh, capitalism. Was that right? Is that the term? Uh, it, yeah. Yeah, and and you kind of suggested you you copped a little flack on this, meaning there was criticism as to your assessment. Is do you feel that? And if I understand the view, because I, I read the article, I, I saw you published on the New York Times on this, was that the the biggest rival today to the the liberal democracy is this idea of the autocratic capitalism that is embodied within the states of both Russia uh, and China. Now. It, this assessment, has this kind of changed? Um, how was it when you first 
came up with the idea? So, um, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm sorry or glad that it hasn't changed. Uh, you know, sorry uh, that as with respect to the world, uh, happy when we're, you know, only with respect to theory. Uh, so, so what we have been seeing uh, is uh, there's things moving in the opposite direction. That is, uh, China has become that much more assertive. Uh, what I suggested that we might in the future see not only rising ch- uh, uh, tensions and then greater ideological uh, rivalry, but also arms races and uh, uh, po- possibly cold war. Uh, and also, you know, if worst come to the worst, also limited wars. Uh, all these has uh, they are the, 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 all the, all these prospects have grown uh, only um, only uh, stronger with respect to both uh, China and uh, and Russia. Uh, both of them have gone in the other direction, in the opposite direction, rather than uh, towards uh, liberalism as was widely uh, argued by others at the time. Um, you know, I should also mention that obviously there is a great, great difference between China and Russia. Not only is China 10 times uh, larger than uh, Russia in terms of its population, it's, uh, it's a fast-growing, fast-developing uh, economy, uh, whereas, uh, whereas uh, Russia is ruled by a kleptocracy, by a government of thieves, uh, who have allowed Russia's industrial infrastructure to be completely eroded. Russia uh, at the moment produces nothing to the world economy except uh, weapon systems. Uh, and uh, it leaves only on the export of raw materials. Um, it, it was clear that Russia is a basket case long, long before the war in Ukraine. Uh, so there is a, a, a huge difference between the two. Now, it seems like the, the, the spectacular economic growth and success of the Chinese state has actually given a lot of credence to the concept uh, of, a autocrat- of autocratic capitalism and actually provides a model for many other developing nations who think that what China, the, the Chinese form of state is actually far more effective for them managing growth and change. What, what does that spell for the future of democracy? Uh, we don't know. Uh, I mean, democracy and the economic development uh, uh, you know, they, they correlate to a large degree. There are, there are no, uh, there are practically no uh, non-democratic developed countries in the world today. You mentioned uh, Singapore. Well, it's, uh, it's uh, semi, semi-democratic or semi-authoritarian. But otherwise, if you, if you did, uh, look at all the other countries in the developed world, all of them, and I remind you what my definition of developed is, over $20,000 per capita from non-oil and gas resources, which are not, uh, which are not indicative of, uh, of development. So all of them are democratic. Obviously, we also have uh, poor 
uh, democratic countries. India has been the most uh, significant example uh, ever since independence. Uh, so, so um, I will need, we'll have to see uh, if the countries in uh, in uh, in Central Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, maybe also in Latin America, um, look uh, to China uh, for a model of their own development. It's entirely in the future. What is more, more worrying is the crisis uh, of democracy. In the, democ- in the developed democracies themselves. This, is, uh, this in my opinion, is more uh, worrying, p- 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 particularly because, uh, obviously, these are also the richest and more powerful countries, and they uh, serve as an example to the rest of the world until the uh, beginning of the crisis of democracy, say, some 15 years ago, say, since the uh, economic crisis of uh, 2008 and everything that followed, the refugees, uh, the, uh, the Brexit, uh, whatever. Uh, then many other things uh, they, uh, they, they, that, uh, I mean, uh, ever since there's been, before that, um, despite resentment in other parts of the world, uh, people knew deep in their hearts that they're in the West, Things were, you know, were working properly uh, in every way. You know, they might have resented this very much, but, but you know, they also, somewhere in their minds, they knew that. Uh, ever since then, the model has been uh, seriously damaged, tarnished. You can see this, uh, the, the point made very clearly in... Uh, in Chinese state propaganda, which now openly argues that their system is uh, superior to Western democracy. So nationalism is is a driving force in creating these trade barriers and therefore that possibility of leading to war. Nationalism doesn't seem as to be an an important force today, particularly when I look at our generation. I mean, often in our case and the way it is discussed, within liberal democracy is that nationalism is viewed negatively. Yeah. What do you think nationalism represents today? Is it something, is it, is it beyond its expiry so, date? So first, let me say that, you know, even before economic nationalism, there is nationalism per se in the 19th century. As I said, the uh, urge to see uh, your, the, the, for national unification does not have an economic aspect. Okay, the, the, the national unification was a very powerful force, still is a very powerful force. Uh, national independence has been a, a very powerful force, irrespective of the question what economic system prevails. On top of that, as you, as you mentioned, there is, also, um, there is also economic nationalism. There might be economic nationalism. Now, with respect to liberalism, and uh, to nationalism in the democratic countries. Uh, First of all, we need to remember that in the 19th century, liberalism and nationalism went together. They were regarded as the twins that threatened the uh, ancien regime, the uh, old absolutist uh, order in Europe. Uh, They were regarded as the two enemies of this old regime because it seems obvious that once people were given uh, their freedom, they would want to uh, live with their uh, compatriots uh, in the same country and independent of foreign rule. 
which pretty much uh, what uh, took place from the 19th century onward. Uh, the, you know, the, the breakup of the, the great empire, the, the Tsarist empire, the Ottoman empire, the uh, Habsburg empire, and you know, in other places as well. You don't need to go that far. So I think Ireland in the United Kingdom and so forth. So, uh, so it went, liberalism and uh, nationalism went together in the 19th century and for a very good reason. The problem was that the horrendous manifestation of, uh, of nationalism, maybe from the late 19th century, but also in the 19th, uh, 20th century, made liberalism very suspicious of, of nationalism. There is also, there is another, there is a deeper reason, which is uh, that liberalism centers on the individual uh, on the one hand and on humanity on the other. And it looks with suspicion on any of uh, the intermediate form of human organization. Uh, so it's either the individual or the common good of humanity. Uh, you know, Aristotle, for example, if you go back to the, you know, to the classics, Aristotle, for example, thought that the human, um, you know, range of affiliation expands in circles. That first there is the family, uh, then the, uh, the, the tribe, then the, uh, the, then the state, uh, and perhaps later humanity. And what I'd like to suggest that is that still this is the case. Now, what, what may, uh, what may um, uh, cloud our view here is that we all live in countries where the national question has more or less resolved itself by a variety of means. First of all, uh, on the whole, countries now, democratic countries now, accept, uh, not with, uh, you know, not with joy, but they accept the, uh, the possibility of peaceful secession if part of the country wants it. We saw this in Canada. Uh, we saw this uh, with, uh, with uh, the Scot uh, Scottish referenda uh, over the past uh, day. We see it in other places, in Belgium. They would have uh, you know, split the country between, uh, between the... Uh, um, uh, uh, Flemish and Valon uh, parts had they, if they only knew what to do with Brussels. Leave uh, hmm. so, it to Europe. But, <laughs> uh, but what you see is precisely this, uh, uh, that uh, nationalism supposedly dead becomes the most salient political question once, uh, once the problem arises, uh, think about, uh, as I said, they think about Canada. Uh, think about uh, Britain and Scottish independence. Uh, think about uh, the uh, Basque country or Catalonia in Spain. Uh, think about Belgium, as we said. Uh, so, think about the Im immigrant crisis. The, Im the immigration crisis throughout the West has been the main driving force be be behind the uh, 
political upheavals that we have been seeing over the past uh, decade or so. It's probably the main question that divides the sides. So uh, the news about the uh, death of uh, nationalism, I uh, am afraid, have been premature. So this drive, so we just kind of want to refine the the detachment between liberalism and nationalism that occurred from what you mentioned in the late 19th century and into the 20th century. So how can we, for example, interpret that coupling um, and, its re- and, its, and how it morphed in the context of more repressive forms of nationalism, such as, you know, totalitarian states? So what happens to, to liberalism and nationalism in those Context. Okay, so so nationalism, like many phenomena, I'll give you a, I'll give you an example in a minute, uh, can be uh, taken in a more benign form and can assume a more aggressive and chauvinistic form. It's obvious. I mean, uh, it can uh, it can uh, take the form of. Uh, of uh, you know the benign wish of people to live with the compatriots in the native country, and it can take the form of uh, beggar your neighbor. That is, uh, you know, we uh, conquer other countries, we kill the population with the ethnic cleansing and so forth. All of uh, look uh, is I'm always giving this example: is sex a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it's responsible for rape. It's responsible for many broken hearts. It's responsible for, you know, for the sexual abuse. Uh, then it's also, you know, one of the major drives that, you know, make uh, that uh, drive people and then make many of them happy. In any case, they want it. Uh, so, so why should we, you know, look, Throughout history, major ideologies, take the Catholic Church, for example, wanted to purge uh, sexuality from human life because of its supposed ills. Uh, It didn't help them much, right? So what we would like to see is uh, the uh, thriving of the more benign, are forms of nationalism, which, by the way, as research shows, also underpin uh, the people's willingness to contribute it, to contribute in terms of uh, social welfare, welfare to uh, to the, the to their uh, compatriots. Uh, they see it as part of you know, for kind of expanded family, and they are willing to help if these are strangers. They are much less or, or, or regarded as aliens or alien. They are much less uh, want to contribute. So uh, much of what we know as a social solidarity rests on nationalist affinity. Right. Okay. So there's an element. There's an element of it that actually helps bind. But in some cases, nationalism can go so far as to actually be quite aggressive. And almost um, dilute, if not destroy itself. Sure. Yes. So as we said, there are are more benign sides to nationalism. Uh, There are more aggressive, chauvinistic sides, destructive sides to nationalism. But, you know, just just to repeat the point, uh, the same is true of sexuality. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, like anything. I mean, it's just like drinking water. You still need to drink water. But if you have too much of it, well, I mean, you drown. So sure. could take it too far. You've written extensively about ideology. And, you know, we've spoken just before about certain concepts can go too far. Some are also necessary. Now, ideology, when is it necessary? I, I, I don't, I hesitate to use the word necessary, but it's, you know, it's ubiquitous. It's, uh, it exists everywhere. Uh, basically, it combines, uh, ideology combines what people want of uh, the social and uh, sometimes even the cosmic order uh, with a roadmap as to how to get there. So it, it combines an interpretation of the world, how the world works, and the desired the social uh, aims that the, the people in question uh, uh, want. Uh, it's obviously a social phenomenon that is because not only, I mean, in the se- a collective phenomenon that is... Uh, nobody is uh, able to uh, to construct a worldview which includes both elements uh, by him or herself. Uh, they uh, they inherit uh, the, the the bulk of their ideological outlook uh, with both its elements from the group to which they belong or choose to belong. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's uh, been a very common, uh, very common phenomenon for obvious reasons. Uh, people want uh, things in the in society. Uh, they want to on, on the individual and collective level. Uh, they need to devise uh, that um, what they regard as a credible uh, program as to how to get there. Um, and here you have ideology. So it has its play and it gives us, I guess, a way, as you said, the roadmap, a kind of way of guiding our actions at various levels, whether professionally, uh, personally, or spiritually. Now, I guess then the other side of that coin is where does it become dangerous? At what, what time do we say, because ideology and the way that the, the expression's used uh, is one, it used use it as, a, as a criticism. So for example, an ideologue is maybe a word we would use in reference to someone who's a purist of the idea and therefore takes it so far as to as the ideas to no longer have any salience or utility. So when will we say ideology to be dangerous? So so I, I'll add to the, uh, to the derogatory meaning of ide- ideologue is not only that, you know, that he is not able to compromise, but also that he is not willing to face the facts. So if I say, you know, there is this uh, book by, <laughs> by uh, Kessler, you know, uh, the darkness in, uh, in, uh, in the noon or what, what, at the noontime, you know, about the Soviet uh, show trials in the 1930s, you know, communists all over the world were, bil- were willing to buy as facts things that were totally incredible. Uh, so ideal, ideologues not only uh, are not able to compromise not only on the uh, on the creed, but also on any interpretation of uh, of the facts in the world that might show that the you know that uh, that the ideology, in order to succeed, 
must change some of its previous assumption as to what works and what takes place in reality. Uh, so this is one. Obviously, with ideology, it depends on the kind of ideology. There are, you know, more benign. For example, there are pacifistic, pacifistic ideology. There are uh, militaristic ideologies. We'll, uh, many of us would, uh, you know, would uh, prefer the, the former, but other, others throughout history, others throughout history might have opted for the latter, you know. So uh, it depends on the ideology. Again, in addition to that, there is the uh, there is the danger uh, that you know ideological divides, even between creeds that you know are not uh, as horrendous as uh, some that we might think of, become so entrenched that people are. Uh, are basically uh, unable to compromise to reach, uh, uh, you know, that some uh, middle ground. Uh, we see this in the United States today. Uh, this uh, threatens the very fa fa fabric of American society. That is two ideologies. Uh, conservative and, uh, liber and liberal, or conservative and progressive, as uh, uh, both of them, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the people who espouse these ideologies uh, do not espouse them in a very, uh, in an extreme way. And still, uh, Americans of both camps are no longer able to listen to each other, uh, and, and certainly not to reach some, you know, Possible compromises on on uh, the on the principles of the creed. So while the creeds themselves might not be might not be that uh, you know might not be that extreme or that bad, uh, the the uh, crisis or uh, the impasse between them might have uh, grave uh, consequences. Mm. I, I read in one of your books, uh, ideological fixation. The, that you quoted at some point some of the arguments of, uh, of Mills, one of which was he, ha he had argued that as a matter of course that a party of order or stability or a party of progress or reform are both necessary elements of a healthy state of political life. Each of these modes of thinking derives its utility from the deficiencies of the other. But it is in a great measure the opposition of the other that keeps each within the limits of reason and sanity. So it's this idea where the natural political and maybe ideological dichotomy between these sides is in itself complementary. Now, how do we then negotiate that with this idea of self-destruction? Because at one point we imply this is important, but then on the other side we're saying, well, then it creates ideology to the point of no one can really understand each other. So how would you draw in Mill's argument so, here? So again, it's a matter of degree and a matter of judgment. A uh, degree that is, uh, hopefully, these, uh, these uh, disputes do not uh, get out of hand. Uh, they are getting out of hand in Israel today, <laughs> uh, to the extent that there is, uh, you know, there is uh, the, the real strife in Israeli society. Uh, they even uh, earlier they got out, out of hand in the United States uh, with results that uh, needs to be seen. 
Uh, and and uh, the hopefully, I mean, some uh, the, the, once the sides uh, the, you know go to extreme, partly uh, as a result of the dynamic, uh, the dynamics of uh, ideological conflict itself, with both sides, uh, each side driving the other crazy, and this is what we see, say, in America maybe also in Israel today. Each side thinks that the other side is crazy, and uh, both of them may have a point. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, uh, apart from uh, the people uh, holding uh, at, on the brink of, uh, of uh, disaster, uh, and the middle ground uh, regains uh, the, 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 the ascendancy, well, what can we say? There is no, you know, textbook, uh, remedy to any of this. Mm. And you mentioned earlier um, how the the immigration crisis in Europe has been one of the driving factors in uh, pushing, I guess, the, the local politics on that continent in certain directions. In other words, it's one of the issues that actually defines now the political left and right. What else do you think are elements today in, you know, democratic countries today which define the right and left today what are the important so issues i think you know the the immigration uh, issue in uh, the, also in the united states not only in europe is one of the major divides and uh, they are there is the old question that you know uh, survives and lingers on of uh, of uh, you know the limits of capitalism, the growing, uh, the growing economic gaps within um, the developed countries, uh, the limits of uh, the welfare state. All these are very, you know, all these are very significant uh, questions. Uh, no easy answers, uh, and then the, they still uh, drive the the. Um, uh, the uh, public debate, the still drive public debate. Uh, in the United States, there is also the uh, question of uh, um, religious motivated opposition to uh, some of uh, uh, the uh, progressive uh, social objectives. Uh, we are all familiar with this. I mean, I don't know if there is something uh, original to be said about all this. Again, you've discussed, um, again, in this, this last book, Ideological Fixation, you've described liberalism, fascism, and socialism as kind of the classical ideas, which I thought was an interesting interpretation or at least way to describe them. Do How do you view the relevance of those philosophies today? So, um, first of all, uh, all three of them have become, uh, you know, liberalism from the 18th century, uh, but uh, the other two uh, following during the 19th and the 20th century. And basically, they were the three main questions to uh, the main uh, answers or uh, programs as uh, for the arrangement, for the structuring of the new industrial society that had emerged from the beginning uh, that, uh, from the beginning of the 19th century. 
we uh, we now had unprecedented conditions whereby as we said first of all wealth work was growing exponentially and at the same time this was uh this uh I involved also growing urban poverty, at least at the, at the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, not later, uh, growing uh, the, the gaps of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, class and, and wealth, and, uh, and also other the human uh, the, the uh, the, the, the distress concerning, uh, you know, social alienation, urban alienation, question of nationalism and other things. So these uh, three ideologies were uh, respectively the three uh, uh, platforms for, uh, for the shaping of the new industrial society. So it's uh, no co coincidence that they emerge. Um, as to their history and their uh, and current um, current status, we can only you know summarize very briefly. Uh, the liberalism is with us, obviously, uh, having gone uh, quite a few changes. Parts of it embracing the welfare state, obviously. Uh, democratic socialism, in a way, merged with. Uh, with left-wing uh, liberalism in, in the countries of the West. So there are you know, very little difference between them today. Uh, Non-democratic socialism, above all communism, has bankrupted itself. Uh, and what I think we are seeing is that the third option, that is uh, fascism, which seem to have uh, to have been crushed by the defeat of uh, of uh, Germany, Japan, and also Italy in 1945, is uh, in a different version, not not in the same mold as in the 1930s, perhaps. Is uh, we are seeing its comeback. That is in many class in many countries that previously had. Where were uh, you know where the communist? The alternative uh, that we are seeing is not uh, liberal and democratic, but rather some version of what we shall loosely define as uh, neo-fascism. Uh, this applies, as I said, this applies to Russia. This applies to China. This may apply to other countries around the world, as we said. No, excellent. Well, I think we may be able to finish up our episode now. I mean, just to summarize our discussion, you know, we've spoken about what are the, the causes of war, particularly in our times of peace, this kind of equation that, that is made about whether or what to pursue, and actually the risks of protectionism and economic nationalism in actually creating these exceptions of intense military conflict. And then we moved into I guess, more of the political ideas that we deal with today, that of liberal democracy, autocratic capitalism, nationalism today, and then to how we interpret ideology altogether. Um, so, no, it's been, I think, a, a very rewarding talk. Um, so, Azar, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Today. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And you can find us on Twitter, 
at the myops. Thank you very much.